BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. That was, I'll switch my phone on silent. Hello, I'm Louis Theroux, and welcome to my podcast series for BBC Radio 4, Grounded with Louis Theroux, where I get to talk to people who, like me, are locked down and confined to the home. People I'm curious to meet and who seem to be keen, or at least willing, to meet me. I'm with the big man. This is the boss. I'm just an additional piece of this. Oh, wow. Flattery already. You usually have to wait around for that. Only now, we meet remotely using video conferencing software, each of us recording our halves of the conversation. Once we're all ready. Mistake of asking anyone if they wanted a tea and the whole house said yes. My guest today is Troy Deeney, the talismanic captain of Watford Football Club, an outspoken player advocate who is utterly unafraid to speak his mind. Like the rest of the Premier League, his season came to an abrupt halt with Covid. We recorded this programme earlier in the lockdown. OK, full disclosure... I hope this isn't going to make things awkward between us. <laughs> I don't know very much about football. Like, I enjoy watching it. Mm-hmm. I grew up in South London. I was at primary school. Chelsea was the team to follow. I used to pretend that I knew what I was talking about and say things like, oh, Peter Bonetti, oh, amazing. Keegan, yes. Although he didn't play for Chelsea, obviously. <laughs> but because my dad's American, it wasn't really passed on as part of my cultural inheritance. Mm-hmm. This is a very long-winded way of saying, forgive me, First of all, for the level of ignorance that you may even find surprising at times, (laughs) it shouldn't in any way be construed as insulting. But second of all, I think it's a way of also setting up the fact that we're going to have a free-ranging conversation that I'm hoping we can bring my audience, many of whom are sort of non-football-focused people, bring them with a little bit. Okay, sorry, but I don't normally go on at that much length at the beginning. Again, full disclosure, I really don't mind it. I class myself as a human being and as a partner and a father and then a footballer. It's my job, same way that your job is, reporting. I don't take it home with me as much as I used to. I fully expect this conversation to go left, right, and a few donuts before going back to the, to the initial point. The donuts will go well with the tea. <laughs> you know, one of the funny things about... Football, unlike, thankfully, being a documentary maker or a journalist, is you actually get ranked, I don't know how scientifically, but you can look on FIFA Mm. where every player has a ranking, right? I mean, you must know this. You play FIFA, don't you? My kids play FIFA. That's why I know this. No, my kids play FIFA. I don't play FIFA. FIFA, the video game, you play with the different players, the real-life players, obviously. And so the top player in the world is Messi. Lionel Messi is on 94 Okay. Kane is on 89. Son is 87. I'm only bringing this up because I imagined you might already know. Do you know what your ranking is? You must know. Based off that, I'm going to say mid-70s. 77. That's not a bad guess, was it? I'm surprised you don't know. I imagine that if I were in your shoes, I mean, I'm someone who Googles himself from time to time, especially when I've had a couple of drinks. So the idea of hey, we're going to actually get a, pick a number out of 100 to decide how good you are. I would find it hard to resist. In my younger days, I would, certainly would have done that. But then I, even when you do great, you're still not going to please everybody. 
I understand what you're saying. I do look at all the comments. I'm not going to lie. I'll read what people are saying back if I've done an interview, for example. Generally, I'm trying to make sure that in my house, this is the most important thing and what people think of me in my house is more important than what somebody that's making the rankings up at FIFA, but he's going off analytics that can be definitely made to look better depending on whatever. My my son, if he wasn't doing his schoolwork, I could bring him in and he could break it down to an absolute T about everything with FIFA. He's costing me enough on it with these FIFA point things anyway. The in-app purchases mm. or we're part of the PlayStation Club or whatever it is, you yeah. pay a monthly fee. And not only the subscription, then you have to buy packs for... Everything. I would say once a week he needs £8 for this, £6 for that. And you sign that off? No, nine times out of ten I get a text saying you've just spent £8 on an Xbox. So. <laughs> Mine is big on... I don't even know if I can say this because it makes me sound like a negligent parent. One of my children is big into Call of Duty. Have yours got into that at all? Yeah, my oldest is 10, well, soon to be 11. So he gets to play, but he can't play online. My 12-year-old is into it. I have a horrible feeling it might be an 18, the game. I mean, those video game ratings, I tend to think, are a bit more nebulous than... It's not like seeing a horror film, right? Exactly, but I remember, it was, I think it was It. I think It's a 15. Is it? Yeah, sure it is. And that's grotesque. <laughs> it's a bit worrying, isn't it? I do think it's all down to the parents, though. I think the level of exposure we give our children is solely up to you. I think nobody should be able to tell you how to look after your kids and raise them in a way that you see fit. I do think there's a little bit of we're trying to shelter them from a world that is unforgiving and unfair and trying to make everything about participation. I know what you're talking about. I think parenting is hard with the wealth of things that the kids can get involved in. The, the world reaches into your home now, right? Mm -hmm. In all kinds of ways, some positive. When my kids game, they're in wherever that is, Call of Duty land or Red Dead Redemption land, but mm -hmm. talking to their friends in the real world, laughing, shouting, joking, crying occasionally. <laughs> that's really the only way they can socialise meaningfully. But that's COVID world for you. You were saying earlier that you do read... The comments, I think you said that. Yep. Any article, if you go to the end, there'll always be like a comment section. Sometimes you see people say, well, he does have a point. I understand what he's saying that. Or then other people might just go, I just hate him. <laughs> like, okay, that's fair as well. So it just gives me balance and perspective on if I'm talking sense, really. Do you go on Twitter or Instagram to see what people are saying about you? No. People's opinion, especially in this COVID world, is very much... They're, they're seeking attention. So a lot of things are said to get a reaction to basically make their day a bit more entertaining. My partner posted a picture yesterday. We've got this new Polaroid app. And you basically take a picture onto this thing and it comes out as a Polaroid. We just kind of put it up there. Oh, thank you very much to Polaroid. Great use and fun with this with the kids. <laughs> like six messages come through just absolutely hammering her. And she's like, well, what, what did I do? <laughs> hammering her for what? being with me, you're ugly, you're this, you're that. Just, Not for taking the product from Polaroid, just for no, random trolling. Just random trolling, yeah, and it's, it, it is that. It's uh, We're bored, we're not happy with our inner self, so we're going to project that onto you and hope that you give some negativity back. That's depressing, isn't it? One of the things I only recently discovered was the extent to which social media and Instagram in particular runs on 
football that three of the top ten Instagrammers in the world are footballers. I, I, yeah, but I guess Ronaldo, Neymar, Messi. Yeah, exactly. With the number one being Ronaldo. I follow him. A lot of pictures of his abs. Very good abs as well. So I think maybe if I could dedicate myself to that, I'd definitely post a few more ab pictures. It's impressive. Do you follow Messi? No, do I? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I'm more of a Ronaldo than Messi kind Go of guy. Go on. That's interesting. Unpack that. Just because I think we saw the evolution of Ronaldo when he came to Man United as a skinny teenager. Just a development. And I think he was quite quick on social media. So he's kind of documented his life more. I feel like Messi's not that interested in it, whereas Ronaldo is very much a documentation. Every day he's doing workouts and showing you, like, look, this is what I'm doing. What I get, and again, this is a very personal and actually uninformed reaction, but Ronaldo projects a certain, and this is in no way impugning the skills which speak for themselves, Mm -hmm. narcissism and a sense of almost a preening quality, where whether it's accurate or not, with Messi... You tend to feel, maybe because he just doesn't speak that much, but there's Mm. a little bit of humility. Plus, he's smaller, and he obviously doesn't have those matinee idol looks. So he darts around, and you think, oh, he's the humble bloke who just sparkles on the pitch and gets on with it and doesn't Mm. think he's God's gift. Yeah, but I think to be the elite, the absolute elite creme de la creme in any world, there has to be a level of narcissism, as you call it, but self-belief unwavering desire to do what you want to do in your way ruthlessness a little bit of ruthlessness 100 percent. and we're all selfish in some aspect again if you're doing your documentaries you'd go away for a large period of time your kids in in time to conform might turn around and say that you've been selfish because i needed you in that moment you've been talking to my wife haven't you no i just get it i think What's never projected to the public is they always see your documentary at the end of it. This is the finished article. This is what it is. They'll never see the processes of what goes through to making it. Even in this moment, you know, I'm locked in the house. I should be able to see my kids and my missus every minute of every day. But yesterday I was on calls from 9am until 5pm. Alongside that, I've got to eat, I've got to train, I've got to walk the dog. And even though I'm in the house, I am here, I'm in touching distance. I'm not actually spending the quality time that the kids probably need. I want to come on and talk about lockdown and how mm-hmm. difficult that can be. But just to finish up on social media, to what extent in the world of football is social media and Twitter and Instagram in the hands of the players? And how much mm-hmm. influence do the clubs and the managers and the agents have over that? Clubs have guidelines you can say this you can't say that you can post this you can't post that and you'll get a level of can you post this to highlight this and boost our brand well let's call it as it's a marketing tool because brands and companies are now saying we can pay Ronaldo this much he has a billion followers we only need to hit that percentage of target audience and that's what we'll get back and we'll make our money back on it so it has become a marketing tool I don't use Instagram very much and in general I've tended to resist playing the fame game not absolutely like I'm not precious about it but you know I don't tend to go out to premieres and I try to avoid overdoing you know exposure of my personal life but I began during lockdown especially using Instagram more and posting pictures of myself making food and I did a lot of posts of me making vegetarian lasagnas and then I found that I started getting free product. Not a lot, but people began saying, like, oh, I see you've been cooking a lot. Would you like to try out our 
cooking utensil and we'd love to send you one. It's oddly beguiling because you're giving something quite cool free and then you think, oh, well, I better post about it. And then you think, do I look like a complete tart? Yeah, it is. that, And, and the thing is, as you say, a little bit of narcissism. I do believe it comes from your upbringing as well. So if you're used to nice things as an upbringing, having nice things is normal, so you don't really post about it. Mm-hmm. If you're from a place of not having nice things, you are very much inclined when you get nice things to go, look, look how great I'm doing. Which, by the way, explains 75% of rap music videos. You know, the world of bling, yeah. which some people yeah. have a problem with as vulgarity and ostentation. I just see a huge amount of pain behind 100%. that. 100%. Or deprivation. You know, a world in which holding up a huge wedge of dollar bills or $100 bills, like a block, is part of the grammar of the videos. To me, that says we are people for whom that means an enormous amount because of everything we've had to struggle through to get here. But with your American heritage, you will understand that we take for granted, and it's perfect at this time, the NHS, for example. So if we get sick, we can just walk up to a hospital. I'm sick, can you please look at me? And in an hour, a few hours, you get treated. If you're sick in America, every process of that, you have to pay for it. That's right. There are programmes that exist for the indigent. What's striking in the American context is the way in which the extremely poor do tend to get looked after, but there's a tranche of the middle class and lower middle class who are neither poor enough to qualify for free medical care nor rich enough to be able to truly afford good care. They're the ones who get the most squeezed. Do you, again, you're meant to be interviewing me here, but it's turned into a big conversation, so I apologise if I'm doing it wrong. But do you look at things in, in the UK then, for example, benefit cheats and things of that nature? We're not poor enough to get this category of looking after, but then we're also working our nuts off, but we're not rich enough to be getting that level. Does that frustrate you more? I tend to think that, Insofar as there are benefit cheats, obviously that's frustrating. But I'm also aware of the way in which the media invites us to hate and become angry about relatively low-level scams and demonise those people as though that's our real problem, whereas I think oftentimes they're a convenient punching bag for frustrated people. We're getting that at the moment, obviously, as footballers. Well, I was going to say, so let's talk about this. From following your interviews and social media, I get the feeling that you're somebody who sticks up for the players. You sort of see players as being in different ways held to a different standard. 100%. 100%. Because for as simple as what you said at the very start of this interview, you didn't really know footballers, but everyone in the playground puts a player on a pedestal because he's a professional footballer. He's already a role model. You have this responsibility that young men, and we are young men, so I'm one of the older statesmen, I'm 31 years old. In a normal line of work, I should just be getting myself together. I should be stopped doing the IB for holidays and it's about time you bought a house now. Whereas at 31, I'm probably coming to the end of my career, transitioning into what do I want to do afterwards. You put a huge expectation on a young person who has probably no guidance of money. I think it's 60-odd percent of players are from low-income housing. They're in the Premier League. And then you look at foreign players as well. So some lads have come from Africa, real troubled backgrounds. And then go, by the way, here is X amount of money per week. Act responsible with that. By the way, did I hear a baby in the background? Sorry, my son's kicking off, yeah. Is everything all right with the baby? If you need to wrangle the baby... (laughs) No, he's fine. He only cries for two things. 
if he's hungry and if he's hungry. I think he's just had the bottle put in his mouth and that's why he's... How old is he? He's four months old. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It was a good idea until he came and now it's, ah, uh, oh, what's a good night's sleep again? <laughs> Are you pitching in? Are you being an active dad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially now in this time when I, I, I don't have to get off of work, etc. So I try my best to be as uh, active as I can. How is he at night? There's going to be people that are going to be going, oh, God. He goes to bed at maybe 10, 10.30, and then he woke up at seven minutes past seven today for a bottle. And then he woke back up at 11. That's good going. At four months, that's pretty spectacular. He's a creature of habit as well. You've been there before. I know you've got two older children, so you'll know everything happens in phases. We're waiting for it. We're waiting for the terrible twos, all of that. Terrible ones, terrible threes, terrible fours. (laughs) They all have their terribles. But you were saying that about money, let's get real for a second. I wouldn't normally do this. And in a way, it feels quite unfair to do this because most people's salaries aren't public domain. But for some mm-hmm. reason, well, I suppose because the salaries are high, footballers' salaries are public property in a way. I looked mm-hmm. it up before we chatted. Do you mind me saying what the recorded salary yeah, I know, is? Yeah, I know it's wrong, so it's fine. The internet tells me, beep, 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 £65,000 a week for Troy yeah. Dean. yeah. It's wrong anyway, but that's fine. It's much more than that, is it? Much less. (laughs) And parenthetically, but puts you, I suppose, somewhere in the middle regarding the Premier League. Marcus Rashford of Man U, 250,000 a week, Mm -hmm. I'm told. But then let's put it into perspective. So of his 250,000, let's work off that. 125,000 already goes straight. That's gone. Tax, national insurance, lost. Then everyone will go, oh, well, he's getting 125,000 pounds. That 125,000 is him, his mum, his dad, his brothers, his sisters, whole family taking care of him. His earning potential is seven to ten years max. It's all phases. No one ever turns around and says, well, an actor got paid eight million for that movie. And let's say he gets a franchise movie. They go eight, 12, 15. And if we pick you up for a fourth, it's 20 odd million. No one ever goes, well, what is he doing with that money? With a footballer, it's a very easy target. And this is why I do get frustrated with it, because for a politician in the, in the midst of a pandemic where everybody is uncertain, and even me watching the news going, tell me what's going on, you decided to say footballers should be doing more. When if we took out how much footballers, just the Premier League, took out their tax money, I think it worked out to this year, 4.5 billion. You've already got that money, On top of that, we all have charities, we all have foundations, we all give to people. And on top of that, we still made a donation. And then afterwards, when it was put to him by Piers Morgan, who I'm not the biggest fan of Piers Morgan, if I'm honest, he then put it to them and said, well, the Premier League have done it. Now what are you going to do? We're going to work harder. No one's questioning him. No one's saying, is that that okay? What if we turned around as Premier League footballers and went, no, we're not going to give any money. We're just going to work harder. It's a shambles. It's, act, it's actually embarrassing. Who did... I don't think I saw this. Who did Piers Morgan say that to? Matt Hancock. Oh, the health secretary. Yeah, because he was the one who came out and called on Premier League players to give more when... Give um, more meaning what? What was Matt Hancock appealing for? He kind of said that Premier League players need to do more and give more to help out the NHS. But that's gone away now because it's kind of like a soundbite. And that's it. Just to broaden out the point, though, and take it beyond the pandemic, the idea that 
people are hitting their peak earning potential in the ages from, you know, 18 or even sometimes 17, even 16 Mm -hmm. through to 30 or 35 if they're lucky, right? And it's a time when most people are still kind of trying to get their head on straight. Your brain is not fully developed, so they say. You know, people in the early 20s are kind of rash and headstrong. And people adulating you and blowing smoke up your ass, as they say in America... I can imagine that would be an extremely strange and difficult situation in which to make the best decisions. Is that something you see? It's something I've lived. I have lived it because I come from low-income housing, mum working three jobs, dad in and out of jail. That's what I lived. And I went from literally earning £180 a week as a builder to go to Watford on five and a half grand a week, plus getting a signing on fee, and my life just went... In my social standing at home, I went from being just Troy to the main provider of the whole family. You know, my parents massively tried their best to tell me what to do and how to guide me, but it was unknown to them. You know, in our family, only my nan had owned a home at that time. In my upbringing, to be successful, you had to have a home, have a car, and be able to put food on the table every day. That was what our version of success was. And I'm but my at the time, 21, there you go, how'd you do it? I didn't finish school, so I didn't have no business savvy. I didn't have any financial restraints of, right, put this much away there, this much away there. I didn't own my first pair of football boots until my nan bought them me out of a catalogue, you know, when you could pay back weekly. I think it was called Kay's catalogue, actually. I didn't own them until I was 18, 19. Then I'm right, I want all the trainers. I want all the hoodies I could never, ever get. And you end up just wasting shed loads of money until, thankfully for me, life hit home in terms of going to jail. And that made me go, wait, I actually have hardly anything in terms of savings here. I need to figure this out. And that's that's kind of what I've done ever since. You mentioned your upbringing. You grew up in Chonsley Wood. Do you want to describe what that was like? Well, it was one of the biggest council estates in Europe up until, I think, mid-80s. For me, it was good. It was, a, it was a solid upbringing, a very big sense of community in terms of everybody had very little and we all shared what we had. And I lived there until I was 23, 24. And it's nine miles from Birmingham city centre. Housing estate maybe gives the wrong impression because from what I understand, it's almost like its own little community with shops and a park and it's a sort of self-sufficient slightly utopian entity that was built with a lot of idealism in maybe the 70s? Yeah, it was based a lot of what, obviously, what the Germans did in terms of doing it in blocks. and Things were built in blocks and people were segmented like that. That's how Birmingham was originally built. But Chelmseywood is more where they pushed the lower income people. Do you think it was a part of a slight social cleansing yeah, push? Yeah, 100%. As you say, we had our own town centre... But you didn't have Debenhams and things like that there. You had a Woolworths, a Quick Save, and Iceland. I'm trying to think of shops that I remember. I think they're trying to smarten it up at the moment. It sounds a bit like I lived in Halston until recently, and it was the same basic profile of shops. When Argos moved in, it was like, oh wow, we've got a department store. That's exciting. <laughs> yeah, we got a Greg's. Just before I moved out, we got a Greg's and I thought, oh, here we go. Greg's the baker. Yeah, we're going up in the world. When Costa moved in, I was like, oh, my God, Costa. We really have arrived in the 
sun-filled uplands of bourgeoisie. I haven't been back in about six months, but there, uh, there definitely wasn't a Costa. We've got a subway now, so we're getting there. We're getting a little off track, but of the fast food on offer, <laughs> like Subway is my go-to choice. Like, actually, you can get a decent sandwich at a Subway. Is this your advert? You're not doing it on Instagram, though. I know, I was going to say, like, they'll be <laughs> contacting me on Instagram. I'd be very happy to receive any reasonable offers. Yeah, we're going to see a post of you like this, eating a meat it's a, not a it's a very undignified look, isn't it? Sometimes you see people shilling for products, you just think, oh, that's not helping your brand <laughs> at all. But what was your... So does your mum still live up in Chelmsley Wood? No, my brother does. I've been fortunate enough to move my mum out of there. But my brother lives in the house that we grew up in. So thankfully managed to buy that. Oh, that's 23, 24. That was the first house that I bought. And my brother's just stayed there and he's looking to move out probably next year. You said your mum worked three jobs. Is that right? Mm -hmm. What kind of thing? Anything. Pubs, cleaning lad books. The three jobs is more heightened towards Christmas. A lot of it was done through, I don't know whether people would know this, but there's like a scheme where you can pay all year round. And then like start of December, you would get like food, coupons essentially to go and get your big Christmas shop. And then you would get like vouchers to use at Argos and, and places like this. So she did a lot of that. Any job, pubs, anything that could really pay, she would do to make sure that we was always you know, keeping our head above water. And did you manage, for the most part, to keep your heads above water? Again, we wasn't poor in the sense of we couldn't get shoes. I said this to my partner, who's from like a middle-class background, and I said, um, we used to have to pay for our TV. So we had a TV with like a pound slot thing on the side, and it'd give you like three hours' worth of TV. But every time it ran out, you put another pound in, and essentially that paid the TV off. Seriously? Yeah, that's how we did it as kids. And generally that to us was normal. The pound coin would go into the TV set. So, like, there's a TV set, and then there's, like, a box on the side. You put a pound in it, it kind of, like, triggered a power for it, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> Over the course of a week, let's say that was £40, let's say, someone would come out at the end of the week, collect it, say, right, you paid £30 off the TV and £10 was interest to them. I've never heard of that. I've heard of people paying for their electricity more or less like that. Yeah, we had that as well. So gas and electric was on a metre. We didn't get a PlayStation or a console till we were, I want to say, 14, 13, 14. And that was the Nintendo 64. I remember those. We got that for Christmas and then our house got broken into on Boxing Day and we lost that. Seriously? Yeah. Did they catch whoever did it? My dad did. Caught the person? The two people that did it, yeah. What ensued from that? I don't know. I was never told that story. Snitches get stitches. Something, something like that. I was a young man, I wouldn't know. He believed in his own law, did he? He didn't really care to get the, the authorities involved. He thought he was better equipped to sort the situation out. Well, yeah, the only time the authorities ever got involved with my dad was when they were coming to take him. That was it. I remember we was in a flat. I want to say I was about eight, and my brother would have been about five. And we had bunk beds in our flat. There was a really narrow corridor, and then like each room kind of come off the side of it. It must have been about seven, eight o'clock, and you just heard a big boom, like the door just come off. And we've kind of sat up, and as I've looked down, like there's four police officers wrestling with my dad, and my dad literally midway through it went, don't worry, boys, dad's just playing with his mate, go back to sleep. Oh, my goodness. They picked him up, carted him off, and then he come back like four days later, he'd been questioned and stuff. Things like that happened so regularly for us that we kind of went... OK, went back to bed, got up. Mum, where's Dad? Oh, 
he's gone out with his mates. Okay. And my mum was an angel in terms of keeping us away from what was the reality of it. It was always, Dad's just gone on a holiday. It was never a case of understanding it until I got, what, like 18, and I was like, Dad, do you want to go on holiday with me? He's like, never had a passport, son. Hold up. But when we were young, you was always on holiday. No, no, I was in jail then. Oh. And then you ask the questions and you understand what it was all about. So, yeah, just just different. Livelihoods, isn't it, really? Troy's father, as it turned out, was a drug dealer, a fact Troy's made no secret of in interviews. And I wanted to explore what impact his father's lifestyle had on the development of a young Deanie and his siblings and how it affected their relationship. Again, I can only talk from my take on it. I think if you ask my brothers and sisters, they would have a completely different interpretation of that. But my take on it is very much that I try and see the good in everything. So I know my dad, again, dead now, obviously, but it didn't get up and go, right, today I'm going to go and do these different types of crimes just because I think it's fun. My dad did everything to do what he, he thought would provide for us. Now, in hindsight absolutely no need for it because things worked out anyway. How did your parents meet, do you know? No, never asked. My dad I'm talking about is not my biological dad. My biological dad left me and my mum from birth, really. What happened to him, do you know? He's around. I don't speak to him. I don't reach out for him. He decided to ditch me, so I weren't good enough then. I'm certainly not good enough now. Well, I imagine you're more than good enough, but perhaps he's not good enough... For you, and I don't mean that as a judgment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't change someone's actions. Has it caused me pain over the years? 100%, of course it has. Have I spoke to psychologists about the impact of how that has impacted my life in regards to my children, in regards to why I used to drink so much? Yeah, there's small aspects of that which we could all trace back to, but I've not only done well for myself, but my family have, have prospered. And I will never discredit my dad in terms of picking up a child from 18 months and raising him as his own. The birth dad, for want of a better term, yeah. do you know, what was his heritage? Jamaican English. He just didn't stick around. But your dad, the man you called your dad and who raised you, mm. how much can you say about him? He was a bit of everything. You couldn't go, he was a specific drug dealer. He'd just done this. He did anything. Did from... he have a job? Because a lot of people who deal drugs, <laughs> they also do other things, right? No, my dad worked, but he was like a salesman, so he'd do things for, like, cash and hand work and sell Sky, for example. You know the people you see in the middle of the shopping centre selling Sky? He'd do little bits like that, but he'd never hold down a long-term job because it was just either the money was too slow or it just didn't fulfil his needs. It sounds like maybe your dad wasn't dealing either enough drugs or the right kind of drugs based on the income he was bringing no, home. He did. Trust me, he did enough but also as well, he was taking enough drugs as well. Not like he was a drug addict, but he'd take some of his own and enjoy his weekends. But my dad was all about reputation. So you heard his name and you feared his name. You just had to hold it at a high level of respect. That's kind of what he did more than... The money never... He would always have enough, but he never wanted too much. That's why a lot of his friends were uh, very rich individuals now. You took your mum's last name, Deanie. Yeah, he made us take that. Why? Because of how much trouble's attached to his last name. What was his last name? Burke. But everyone knew him as Berkey. Paul Burke. He wouldn't let you say Paul Burke. You had to say, if you said his full name, it's Paul Anthony Burke. And he made sure you said that. Why, why did you have to say his middle name as well? Just how he was. You either called him Berkey or you called him his full name. 
that was it, one or the other. Wow. He does sound very complex. It was really weird. It was only up until about six months ago. I used to think my dad was like 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, and my mum was like, you know he's only 6'4". We were exactly the same height. He was never scared of anything. He sounds like an extraordinary person. Wouldn't have wanted to get on the wrong side of him. No, but he was so engaging, that's the word I would say. That's why he was so good at selling things on the street, because you'd want to talk to him. But he had this... You know when you look at certain people and you have, like, a little look in their eye and you're like, oh, you're not wired properly. It's something little and you just switch and that was it and you, you couldn't stop him. And he and your mum had a pretty good relationship? Yeah, as far as I'm aware. Again, I've spoken about it briefly, but I'm doing a lot of work of breaking down the layers of me. In therapy? Yeah, just to understand it all because I do things and I'm like, where did that come from? Emotionally, I'm very detached. And she just, you know, when I've asked questions, she said, like, lovely man, lovely individual, but every time you went out, you were worried if he was going to come back. I can't even imagine what that was like for my mum, to be perfectly honest with you. What do you think she meant specifically? Whether he'd get locked up, whether he'd be dead, anything. Just didn't know whether he was going to come back. Did he get into scraps? Yeah. Well, it goes far in his heyday daily, but I'd say weekly. With who? Anyone. Someone who owed him money, someone who may have owed a friend money, and he would go and get it back for them. Anyone. So he was not just supplying illegal product, but also rather pugnacious. Oh, yeah. You knew who was coming. And he was so blasé about it, he'd call you and say he's coming. So if you owed him money or you owed somebody money, he's like, oh, I'm going to be at your house in 15 minutes. To collect the money? Or collect you. Wasn't scared of anything. I can see your mind going, ask questions, it's fine. OK. We can talk about this all day. What <laughs> drugs was he dealing? <laughs> he was very clever. There is one story I can tell you which is actually very funny. So early 90s, he was doing a rave and he went and bought 20 paracetamol pots and scratched the peas off them because back in there he used to have a big pea on them, scratched them off and sold them as ecstasy. And he said it was funny because people kept coming back to him and he said all they would do was having paracetamol. <laughs> I think he just loved the buzz of it, to be perfectly honest with you. So he dealt paracetamol. I didn't know that market was so lucrative. Did a bit of everything, really. Bit of everything. A little bit of a Dell boy of the narcotics trade. Whatever happened to fall off the back of a lorry? Oh, yeah, there was always, like... We got bikes when I was 12. We were, like, really buzzing with it. I think I'd been on it for about a week. And then someone knocked at the door, a man and his child, and basically someone who my dad had sold drugs to, to pay my dad, had stolen his bike and given it to my dad as payment. And obviously this kid had saw us riding around on these bikes and kind of said to his dad, that's my bike. Oh, sorry, mate, here you go, have the bikes back. And then we didn't have a bike. But it's interesting that your dad gave them back. Again, he wasn't your nasty, vindictive criminal where he could have easily just went, well, the mine now, yeah. shut the door kind of thing. We were just like, OK. He had a sense of... Certain sense of justice or something. Yeah. But not with the, his clientele. The thing with dealing paracetamol as though it was ecstasy, I would have thought professional pride as a drug dealer might make you think, I'm known <laughs> for the quality of... Like, there's a certain professional pride. But also, it's true, though, there was not many people that were selling paracetamol, so he was probably right saying that. That's right. In this party, I've got the best of the best. Guarantee you don't wake up with a headache. Yeah. He may have even saved a life that night. Mm-hmm. 
and he certainly got rid of a few headaches and ameliorated some some hangovers. Can you imagine being that guy in the morning though, when you wake up and you think you've had like a really heavy night, and you're like, oh, I'm brand new. I'm ready to run a marathon. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. We should have laughed. This is all things that happened many years ago, and Troy certainly wasn't involved in, just for a disclaimer. Oh, yeah, that goes without saying. You were probably just a little slip of a thing. Yeah, it would have been four or five. So when your dad said, oh, I'm just playing with my friends, and he was being manhandled mm-hmm. by police, how old would you have been, and did you buy that? Did you actually believe him? Yeah, I was like eight. You didn't think, oh, it's a bit weird for a grown man to be playing with men dressed as policemen? No, because I I used to go and watch my dad play Sunday League football and him and his mates would always end up in fights anyway. And then he would kind of be like a laugh and go to the pub and it was just just normal. Like a fight was just a normal thing that happened at football pitch. Wherever I was, it happened in the pubs. There was always some form of violence around, so that was very normal. You've talked about this before, the fact that... There came a time when your dad laid hands on your mum and I think on you as well. Yeah. Is that something you're willing to speak on? Yeah. Can't say it elsewhere and not say it to you, can I? No, exactly. <laughs> what happened? Can you talk about what happened? Yeah, my mum left. My mum left him. My mum just grew tired of the, the nonsense, essentially, the not coming home for three days at a time, the drugs. I think with the lack of steady income, I suppose, the lack of normality... At that point, it was me, my brother and my sister. So I think at that point, my mum had kind of gone, I don't want to keep bringing the kids up in this. I remember when she left, he went, you can go, but the kids are staying. And we lived with our dad for, uh, I think, about four, five days before we had enough. Um, And he just went, I can't. We then moved in with my grandma and my granddad for... I picture that period as about three months, but I've been told it's a year. With your mum's parents? Yeah, and then we got our own place. But when we moved house, my mum didn't want my dad knowing where we lived. We moved in, and then we went to my dad's for the weekend. And as soon as he picked us up, something weren't right. I can't remember what it was. I don't know if he was slurring his words or he was just angry. But there was something weren't right. And he kept saying to me, where'd you live, where'd you live? And I just wouldn't tell him. And then my younger brother, who must have been... He would have been eight. He turned to him and was like, show me where you live. And because we used to ride our bikes from... I say ride our bikes. My brother had a bike. I used to run from our house to my auntie's house to play with our cousins. So my brother went, oh, you go up there, you do this. Like, we just kind of knew the route, but we couldn't obviously tell you on the road. And then he ended up going there. He dragged us all out of the car. My sister would have been, what, four? My sister would have been two. Dragged us all out of the car... Not the door, obviously. My mum's opened the door and then he just pushed us all in the house and just persisted to, like, say to my mum, like, you're going to have me back. And every time she said no, he kind of just hit her. And I just remember just keep jumping up, getting in front and saying, don't hit my mum. Then he'd hit me, throw me, hit my mum. I just remember not staying down, getting up, getting back in front, getting up, getting back in front. And thankfully, uh, a friend of mine come to knock the door. He's Troy playing out, just as simple as that, as innocent as that. And my dad basically said, get lost, and scared the kid to the point where he ran home, got his mum, which was maybe like five doors away. She could hear the commotion, phone the police. And thankfully, yeah, that probably saved us, to be perfectly honest with you. He was out of control. It wasn't... No, he was definitely on something. Looking at him, that wasn't him. Do you know what I mean? And the thing I remember, the last time he hit me, I remember the police knocking the door. And the guy kind of put his arm through the door 
you know, like open the door. My dad saw it, tried to shut the door. Police officer put his arm through, and I remember my dad just whacking this guy's arm with the door, and he just wouldn't move his arm. And then they must have called response, and it just wave after wave after wave of police car come. And I think eventually, to get him out, as far as I remember, there was two right vans and four police cars to get him. But were you in there with him? Yeah, we were still inside the house. So you were effectively hostages at that point? Yeah, effectively. Never really looked at it like that, but yeah, effectively. That's an extraordinary thing to have experienced. And what's remarkable to me is that you don't seem to have allowed that to destroy your relationship with your father. No, it did. It did for a few years, massively. Like, I've never forgiven him for it. No, I'm sorry. I've forgiven him for it. I've never forgotten it shaped me a lot as well. I remember going to school and someone tripped me over, as kids do, trying to be funny. I remember just going, that will never happen to me again. No one will ever bully me. I just remember going and I just whacked the kid with my hand, just, just punched him. It's going to sound really bad, but I kind of had that moment when I looked at my hand and kind of went, oh, that works. And then from that moment, I've always had this, I won't let it fester and let people think, I wouldn't say think I'm weak, because we're all weak. Basically, we just won't let people have the idea and build up the courage to then go, right, we can attack, if that makes sense. I'll kind of go, do we have a problem? No, we don't have a problem. OK, no problem, see you later. And I'll kind of walk away and defuse situations. Assertiveness. Um, people pay hundreds of thousands of pounds to learn that in Scientology. It sounds like you learned it for free, or maybe at a different kind of a cost. It certainly wasn't for free. People always get on my teeth, so if you can see my teeth... They're all jaded and that, and that was from that first moment from when my dad hit me. Really? Yeah, my teeth got all disaligned from it. And that's the reason I'll never get my teeth done. It reminds me every day. Seriously? Mm-hmm. Why do you need to be reminded every day? Maybe when I'm older and I'm completely over it, I'd probably tell you. But as of right now, balance. I'm very fortunate, Lou. I'm not going to sit here and say I'm not fortunate. I live in a beautiful home which I've managed to pay my kids all go to private school. My mum, brothers, sisters, everyone's healthy. I need balance. Honestly, genuinely, love. I, I struggled with love for a very long time, of understanding what love is, how to be OK. I kind of shouldered all responsibility for a very long time. So now these are the reminders that things can happen. Look where you've come from and look what you've overcome. Don't get too confident that this can't all be taken away from you very quickly. We started talking about all of this in the context of how much players are paid and the extent to mm -hmm. which many of them are not equipped to deal with the sudden onset of fame and wealth because of where they've mm -hmm. come from. One of the things that I noticed re reading up on you was that actually you weren't the kind of person who sort of set out to play in the Premiership, who, who sort of fixated on the idea of no. being a top-ranked footballer. You sort of got into it somewhat haphazardly and without the sort of maybe clinical focus and, and ambition that other players might have had? I basically just played football because I love football. I was always pretty good at it, but my younger brother Ellis was the star athlete of the family, should we say. He used to play for Villa for a very long time, and I used to just go and watch his training sessions, see what they were working on, so that we could practice at home or in the garden. But when I finally got talent spotted, should we say, I'd been made redundant You'd been working as a bricklayer? Yeah, as a builder, yeah. So we just finished the local doctors in Chelmsley Wood, which is still standing, so I can't be that bad a builder. I got my last paycheck on the Friday. 
Saturday, I went and played football, had a really good game and someone happened to be there from Warsaw watching his son play on the other team. And again, that was my highlight. If I could play for that team, because all the local lads played for it, all the cool kids played for that team. So if I could play for that team, in my mind, I was cool and I was... What, were they, was, what was that team called? Chalmsy Town. It was super simple as that, yeah. That was our local team. and But that was just a weekly kickabout thing, right? It wasn't in the Vauxhall Conference or anything like that. No, so from the conference, it's maybe nine leagues below the conference. Oh my gosh, I didn't know they went that low. Midland Combination 2, it was called. Yeah, it's very, very, very low. It's a local community club that's still running and the people that manage me still manage it to this day. How old were you at that time? 18. You were spotted at 18. And until then, mm. had you not entertained serious thoughts about being a professional footballer? Not at all. Just wasn't in my makeup, wasn't in my path. It was never my dream. That was my brother's dream. We were going to make sure Ellis was perfect. And when he was perfect, he would look after the rest of us kind of thing. Ellis is a pro footballer as well now, right? Yeah, he plays conference, yeah. Again, Ellis has got all the capabilities of doing it, but our dad dying hit him very, very hard and affected his football because dad pushed him a lot in football. But yeah, the guy from Warsaw come and watch the game. I scored a couple, played really well. And again, I was playing with like big adults at this time. So I was the youngest on the pitch by about six, seven years. So I was kind of just like running here, there and everywhere. I must have looked like a dog chasing a packet of crisps. Yeah, he kind of said, can you come to Warsaw? And at this point, I didn't even know where Warsaw was. And it's like four junctions up the M6 from where I'm from. I kind of just went, yeah, whatever. Because I knew we were going out that night. So I kind of wanted to get into the clubhouse and have a few beers with the lads and then go out with them. That's really striking that, because in a way it was a life-changing moment, but it evidently didn't mm-hmm. feel that way. And I just wonder, maybe deep down it, it was and you didn't allow yourself to feel that or perhaps you just really didn't care. But that suggests a kind of almost nihilism, like a sense of lack of ambition or something, a sense of opportunities not being real for you. It's quite odd. I don't think it's a lack of ambition. I never had ambition. Because I'd never seen ambition. Yeah, I think that's what I meant. Like, not that you weren't capable of being ambitious, but ambition didn't seem realistic. Didn't seem like something you were allowed. Because everyone that went to my school that ended up working at Land Rover or working at the Dunlop factory, they still lived at home. They could pay their mum keep, but they could still go out on a weekend. They're the ones I could identify with. So when someone said, ah, you're very good at football, I've been hearing I'm good at football since I was six years old, but I was never the top three. So I'd always get picked, but I'd never the the one that everyone. What wanted. do you suppose happened to the ones who were being picked first, second, and third? I know where most of them are now. Are they pro footballers? I'm nowhere near that. Why not? Their talent didn't flourish and grow in the way yours did, or they didn't apply themselves, or they got unlucky. No. So with me, you don't have to open the door and show me everything. You just have to crack the seal and go. Like if you just get through that, the opportunities are endless. So once I saw that at Warsaw, so when I got. I got collected on Monday morning. Somebody from the club picked me up and took me there because I didn't genuinely didn't think it was true because I, w- I would have missed it. You were going to sack it off or you just forgot or what happened? I just didn't think it was real. Why would someone from a football club want to come to little old Chelmsy Town and speak to Troy? So I was just in bed, just chilling and the door knocked and I genuinely thought it was like somebody coming for money. So I kind of popped my head out the window and it was Derek from the club and he was like, come on, we've got to go. If Derek hadn't like, come over, you actually would not have I shown up. I wouldn't have up. gone. And he did an intervention. 
I played Sunday League the day before, so I had my big boots caked in mud in an Asda bag and a tracksuit. I just flung it on, jumped in the car and went. And he dropped me off. And that was it. Once I was in, and then I realised very quickly that you can transition from my level of football to making a career of this and a solid income by playing football, I kind of went, OK, well, let's give this a whirl then. This trial that was supposed to last a week ended up being three months without getting paid. And they sent me to a team called Hales Owen, which is just outside of Birmingham. And that was like, can you play with men? Because when I was playing with the 18-year-olds, I was just throwing them all around because I'd been playing with adults for so long, so I'd learned how to you know, handle myself, for example. And they went, let's see if you can do with, with adults. They sent me to Hales Owen, who are Conference North. And the thing that made it really good for me at Hales Owen, they gave me £60 a game and then £40 a goal. So to me, it was like, there's a potential to earn £100 each game. And they played Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday. So I was like, oh, I can earn £300. If I'm good, I can earn £300. And managed to do really well there. And then I went back to Warsaw. And they went, we'll give you a contract at the end of the year. And that was £110 a week, plus a train ticket. Was your dad a football fan? Yeah, Birmingham City fan. Well, actually, say that. He used to go to Birmingham City with the hooligans, but he was a Leeds United fan. The hooligans are what, the Birmingham City fans? Yeah, they're called Zulus. Oh, I see what you're saying. The Zulus are notorious. Was he in the Zulus? Yeah, him and my uncles, yeah. And they were a kind of multiracial, because some football hooligans tended to be racist. The Zulus were formed to act against, essentially, the national front guys when it originally started. How did your dad react when he realised that you were... A professional footballer. He was massively proud. But he always used to compare me to, like, Teddy Sheringham and people like that. He used to say, like, his footballing brain's very good. His legs are just not as fast. I'm quick enough, but I'm not. I wouldn't be in your top five fastest players, let's put it that way. Let's fast forward a bit. A friend of mine who I was talking to before this call, he said footballers love having sex together. I don't mean with each other. I mean... I say, yeah. Can we clarify that, please? Yeah, yeah just to be clear. <laughs> although... Gay footballers is another question that I had about... I guess because you read in the tabloids about a couple of footballers bringing back an escort or sex worker, whatever term you prefer, and then partying together. Share females, high-fiving one another, saying, your turn now, jump on this. That, to me, again, this is solely Troy speaking, that, to me, is, like, just disgusting. I don't know why that would be entertaining to anyone, but some people like it. And, again... Even in that term when you said, is that a thing that footballers do? It's a thing that people do. You know, in some movies and stuff, you see, like, loads of, like, sex parties and stuff that people from government, media, all, all go to. It's just, it's just kept behind closed doors and it's never out there. So do footballers do it? It's like, well, if everybody else in the world does it, I'm pretty sure there's an element of footballers that do it. Anyone that Troy's ever been out with or in involved with has never ever done that that's what I can say I love that answer and fair play to you for picking me up on that as is well known you had your own brush with the law right you Mm -hmm. got a case off it and even did time and this wasn't like at the beginning of your career either you you were at Watford by this time yeah well how much do we want to talk about this are you happy to go into it yeah I'm very much happy to go into it because for me it was definitely a crossroads in life when I got sentenced to jail to give people a bit more perspective I was in the championship with Watford I was actually Watford's top goal scorer that year. So things were going, quote-unquote, good, well. 
But not being aware of how well I was doing and what could potentially come off the back of that, I was still trying to be the cool kid from Chelmsley Wood, still trying to be cool to my mates from home and not realising there was a bigger world out there. And so, yeah, so within that, I was taking a lot of risks in terms of who I was associating myself with, where we were going, all these different things. And none of us had sat back and kind of went, we've kind of got to grow up with it. We were still in the 18, 19, 20-year-old mentality when we were like 22, 23. How much can you say about the incident itself? It was a Tuesday night. Went out, I was on the phone and kind of just like walked through a bit of a melee, but not really caring, was on the phone, carried on. And then someone just said, are your brothers in there? That was your brother. And I just lost it and I just steamed in hit anything that moved. And I remember someone grabbing my leg and I just thought, because of the people that I kind of used to run around with, you know, might have a knife, you might have anything. And I thought, obviously, if someone stabs me in my leg, then football's over anyway. And I just turned around and, and just kicked him in the face. And that was the action I got sent down for because naturally, being as powerful and as strong as I am anyway with kicking a football, kicking a human being in the face was... Um, yeah, I was always going to get sent down. And on reflection, it's if someone had done that to my son, I'd be livid. So I was embarrassed and ashamed of it, but it happened and I can't change it. So I just try my best so that it will never happen again. So with that being said, it shaped me because I got 10 months in jail, which I ended up doing three and then three on tag. That didn't change me. What changed me was... My mum works for Network Rail. So she went into the train station and the local paper had a picture of me and my brother on the front of it and said, footballer sentenced to jail kind of thing. And everyone in her office was talking about it. She was just ashamed and I was like, I'm meant to be the one who protects you, as we spoke about earlier on in it, and I'm the one now embarrassing you. So that was a big thing. And then I was in Winston Green Jail for a few weeks and a lot of the people in there I either grew up with or knew my dad. And I was in the gym. Two of the guys that I knew from the pub come up to me and just went... Because I'd, I'd lost my dad as well, to give people context. I buried my dad on the Friday and went to jail on the Monday. After an illness, right? Yeah, my dad got cancer of the esophagus, which killed him in, like, six weeks. Really? So I kind of went in there with a sense of, I'll be all right, because one of my friends was on the same wing as me and other guys that knew my dad was obviously around the prison. So I kind of went in there like, I'll be all right. What happened when I was in the gym was guys come up to me and literally went, if I didn't have so much respect for your dad, I would slap you all over the place right now. And I was kind of like, huh? Why? You're living everyone's dream and you fucked it up to want to be tough on a night out. You're an embarrassment. You've got to understand how big of an opportunity you've got, not only for you, but to show young kids from around our area that they don't have to be like us. Yeah, a lot of people put me straight because, again, I thought I was... The cool kid, everyone would speak nicely to me and we'd kind of get along. But people just told me I was an idiot and that's what I needed. And then, yeah, when I came back out of jail, I just decided that I was going to give it a real good go. And I've still made mistakes along the way, but I definitely dedicated myself to football a, a lot better. I'm aware we've been talking for a while. I've really enjoyed talking to you, Troy. Mm. You've been amazingly candid and it's appreciated. Here's a random question. This came up earlier. Where are all the gay footballers? They're there. They're 100% there. Do you know who they are? 
No, because I've got a big mouth, so I'd say something. But I'm interested. I'm interested for the, the simple fact of I think there is now a bigger platform than ever to be a gay athlete of any nature. I always wonder why do people finish football, rugby, whatever the sport might be, and then go, I am gay. I don't know, because I feel like once it's out there, it's out there, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? It's, I feel like it must be a real heavy load to carry throughout all your sporting career. I would have thought, but I don't think they're doing it out of selfishness or sort of sense of biding their time as such. It's more fear of either rejection or bullying or... Isn't it part of the culture? But while I understand what you're saying, with everything that's going on in terms of the rainbow... Coalition or something, whatever it is, like pro-LGBT groups. Now would be the best time. And also, again, this is not the point, but if you're looking at it solely from a campaigning point of view, where we spoke about with Instagram and things like that, the marketing and the exposure you're going to get to be the first openly gay, active playing footballer, let's say... Me personally, I'm very comfortable in the... What you're saying is you just wish you were gay and then you could scoop up all those sponsorships. Yeah, 100%. I'd cartwheel into it. I think what people don't want to do, sorry, that are gay or from that community, definitely are very worried about having to shoulder the responsibility of being the first. I think once the first comes out, there'll be loads. Let me put this out there. Can you imagine if Ronaldo were gay? Or bisexual. I don't see that as, a, as an issue. You saw the picture of him being carried by the guy. No, I haven't. You'll have to show me afterwards. But if he come out and said it, I genuinely believe you would get, in the first week, a hundred people that went, me too. Just because they don't want to be the face of it. In football? Yeah, in any sport. But yes, I certainly believe that I would go on record probably saying there is probably one gay or bi person in every football team. There's your headline. Yeah, that'll be it. That'll be all over Sky for the next two weeks. Do you know what I mean? Just by the the sheer stats and numbers and the amount of people that are around, that's like saying there's not one racist in a football team. I genuinely put it on the same aspect. There has to be a racist, whether that be a black guy that's racist towards white guys, white guys to black guys, whatever it might be um, in terms of religion, anything. I just genuinely think now that the law of averages would suggest there's got to be at least... At least one gay footballer that's actively playing. You're saying that you don't really understand why these gay players aren't coming out. Is that right? Yeah. Your sense is that they would not be bullied if they came out or wouldn't be? I could only talk on if someone was to come out in a Watford dressing room with me as the captain. If I turned around, one of my players turned around and said, lads, just want to let you know I'm gay. I would genuinely tell you for about a week, there would be a bit of a... You know, like a questioning, can we shower together? Or do you look at me when I'm... Do you know, like, there'll be genuine questions, which I, I think people will probably listen to this and go, oh, well, that's probably why they don't come out. But genuinely, people would have questions, be inquisitive and to know how they would want to be treated, vice versa. And then by week two, no-one would care. Honestly, no-one would care. So all you gay footballers that are listening to this podcast, come on. I think, I think they should. I, be the I, first... Be the Neil Armstrong of gay footballing and plant your flag mm-hmm. and say, I'm out and I'm proud. But would, would you, I don't would mean you... to... That sounds like I might be trivialising it, which I don't, I don't mean to. But do you think, honestly, in, in today's society, this is solely a question for you to answer however you want, 
Do you think it's easier to be gay or to be racist now? It's easier now. That's a great question. That's a really hard question. I think it's easier to be gay, isn't it? I would say so, yeah, but I just genuinely want to know your... Yeah, my feeling is it's easier to be gay, but actually it's a bit nebulous. My feeling is that as a society, and rightfully so, we take a dim view of racism while we tend to accept that people's sexuality among adults is completely their own business. But I also mm-hmm. think that cultures vary around the world. There's places in Eastern Europe, and I don't mean to stigmatise Eastern Europe, but you know, historically mm-hmm. there's been racist incidents at grounds in Eastern Europe, and those are also cultures in which homosexuality is probably viewed in a different way as well. Again, going back to America, there's gay NFL players, right? You're asking the wrong person about that. Hockey players? Whether they're out, I don't know. Yeah, because I do remember um, Dwayne Wade, the basketball player, used to be uh, represented USA in the Olympics and obviously for, played for Miami for a number of years. His son now, he's 13, maybe 14, identifies as a woman. I think I heard about and this. And they, they support him and push it as proudly as any parent would, I suppose. But I don't see any stigmas coming out about that. Will they get negative people online? Of course they will. You get negative people online, even if you give a million pounds to charity, they'll turn around and go, why yeah. do you give to there's, there's a troll for every occasion. The sooner you realise that... And not the good ones that the kids watch. And not the good ones. Not the ones that sing in close vocal harmony and make funny animated films. I watched that movie the other day. Wow. It's pretty good, right? That was interesting. I, th- I thought it was pretty good. I fell asleep for like 15 minutes, I'm not going to lie. And found it difficult to follow the plot afterwards. What I object to <laughs> isn't so much the animated films. I enjoy those mostly. But the gormless YouTube videos that he insists on watching oh. of, of other families playing video games or playing with toys. There's a kid in America, isn't there? I forget his name. He literally makes 30 million a year. Yeah. He opens kids' Unboxing. presents. He's the world's most highly paid YouTuber. The girls are massively interested in that, which is bizarre because they're opening things that we've got. And I'm like, it's there. Look, honestly, just look at it yourself. It's fine. We'll yeah. never get it. He, he does it better. Yeah, he does it better, obviously. He does it better. I think, Troy, we might have got to that special time when... Um, We've got to go back to our families. We've got to go back to our families. <laughs> but first we invite Paul and Catherine back okay. from behind the curtain. You've been listening to Grounded with Louis Theroux. My guest today has been footballer and Watford captain... Troy Deeney. Thanks for that, Troy. I really enjoyed it. I'm sorry I started with your FIFA ranking and then I was like, I wonder if this was the wisest opening gambit. Remember, there are many more conversations like this in the series. Just search for Grounded with Louis Theroux wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And I think the other thing is you speak your mind, you're very honest, you don't feel like you're someone who's got his agent or manager whispering in your ear to deliver a certain prepackaged message. You're your own person. Oh, they try. They give up about four years ago. I think it was around about the time when I said Arsenal have no cojones and I was on live TV. They knew it was a lost cause. And how right you were. Next week, it's the turn of TV presenter, former model and mental health campaigner, Gail Porter. This has been a Mindhouse production for BBC Radio 4, cobbled together remotely by Paul Kobrak and Catherine, my nan.
I find quantum mechanics confusing today. Hello, I'm Brian Cox. And I'm Robin Ince, and the Infinite Monkey Cage is back for a new series, and we are dealing with so many fantastic ideas, and even better, no one that we've asked has got an alibi for getting out of doing the show. So in this series, we have got, well, the first episode alone, we talk about the end of the universe with Brian Green, Katie Mack, Eric Idle, and Steve Martin. Yes, you heard that. Steve Martin and Eric Idle are joining us. Anyway, enjoy the new series. We're having a fantastic time making it. Brian's particularly enjoying it because he's hundreds of miles away from me and they're just using technology to create some sense of proximity. That's the great thing about it all. That's the Infinite Monkey Cage on BBC Sounds Now. Well, not now. I mean, there's no unique definition of now in physics. It's simultaneity's relative. It's on BBC Sounds, anyway. Unless you've got that Robin Ninson Professor Cox I'd leave that poor pussy alone in its box That cat may be as dead as a rat You can wage in the infinite monkey game